Welcome back to the program. We all remember that youthful spiritual song, Dem Bones, about the head bone being connected to the neck bone and the thigh bone being connected to the hip bone, etc. What the song didn't include is the connection between the stomach and the brain. And it's not just about what you eat or the food you take in. It's about the vast array of bacteria and microorganisms that live in your gut and the impact they have on how the brain works. My guest, Dr. David Perlmutter, the author of the best-selling Grain Brain, now takes us inside this interplay between intestinal microbes and the brain. David Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist, a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, the author of the bestseller Grain Brain, and his newest book is Brain Maker. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. David Perlmutter to the program. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us. And I'm delighted to be with you this morning. Thank you. Great to have you here. How long have we known in a scientific sense that there is this axis, this connection between our stomach, the, our microbe, and the brain? Well, again, that right there, there's some delineation that needs to happen. I mean, we've known for decades that things related to the gut influence brain activity. So that gut-brain axis that has gotten a lot of study uh, has really been a focus of science for decades. But you bring up another point, and that is the role of the bacteria living within the intestines and how they influence the brain. And this is really leading edge. You know, this is only the past four to five, six years that we're really starting to see this incredible explosion of medical research helping to allow us to understand how these bugs that live in the gut, this hundred trillion organisms called the human microbiome, are affecting not just the brain, but every aspect of the metabolism uh, in human physiology that you can imagine. So it's, it's brand new science and you know, a lot of the work is being done at our most well-respected institutions around the world. And that said, the exciting news is that we didn't know about it. Why? For me, uh, because I'm in a field, neurology, where we don't have really any meaningful treatment for some of our most worrisome conditions. You know, the Alzheimer's, the autism issues, depression, ADHD, etc. don't really have any meaningful remedies. And I think the reason is that we've been looking in the wrong place. The answer for these problems isn't in the brain. It's outside the brain. And now the attention is focused on the gut. And as you well point out, those bacteria that live within the gut that regulate immunity, regulate inflammation, that manufacture brain chemicals that determine mood. So what an incredible, empowering time it is to suddenly have this whole brand new playing field. We've entered a brand new arena, and it's very, very exciting. Talk about it in terms of the holistic picture of this, the way in which there is this interplay, that in fact, to what extent is it really this microbiome and what goes on in the gut that is potentially impacting all of these aspects of brain activity, or is it really the interplay of the two and the combination of what's going on in the brain plus what's going on in the gut? I would say that I love the word holistic. You know, there's been so much pushback with reference to that term over the years because of the connotation of being less than scientific if you have a holistic perspective. And that said, uh, you have to understand that, you know, the, the human body has been looked upon as an integrated whole. Uh, it's throughout our, our, our time on this planet, it's only been quite recently in the past 100, 150 years 
that this reductionist mentality has taken hold, that the brain is here, the gun is over there, the heart is in another place, and these things are not related in any way. And nothing is more absurd. So this idea that, uh, you know, that it's an outgrowth of uh, Rene Descartes' view of the body representing simply an amalgamation of the individual parts, the lung being the bellows, the heart being the pump, the brain now looked upon as being your laptop, you know, this, this idea doesn't hold water anymore, and, and fortunately, there is a, a huge trend in well-respected researcher uh, institutions to, to really gain an understanding of this integration of this system. And it's, it's really, as I mentioned earlier, opening a lot of doors in terms of implementation of therapeutic protocols based upon this interplay. Now, the gut... Uh, and its role, as mentioned earlier, in regulating immunity and inflammation and the action of chemicals called free radicals that damage our tissue, therefore is playing a role in the body from top to bottom, influencing the risk of coronary artery disease, a person's risk for becoming a diabetic, uh, even the risk of cancer we now understand comes from things gut-related, and specifically uh, those issues <clears throat> that relate to the balance of those very bacteria that live within us. You know, we as, as Western uh, individuals have been really inculcated with this sense that we've got to fear bugs, that there's a bacterium around every corner that's lurking and going to get us unless we are using hand sanitizers at the uh, end cap in every aisle in the grocery store and making certain that we load up on antibiotics every time we have a sniffle. Nothing could be worse for us. You know, the idea of bombarding our bodies with antibiotics, shutting down the growth of good, healthy bacteria in our gut, uh, these are issues, and, you know, not to mention the effects of our diet on the gut, that relate directly back to the moment-to-moment -moment function of the brain, how we perceive the world, our mood, and our long-term risk, for brain degenerative conditions. So this opens the door for the discussion of preventive medicine in the brain arena, which is a discussion that really until just quite recently has never happened. And interestingly enough, that door was opened by a researcher at the University of California, San Francisco, uh, Dr. Deborah Barnes, publishing in the journal Lancet Neurology. So right in your neck of the woods mm -hmm. came a publication a couple of years ago indicating, at least as it relates to Alzheimer's, that more than 52% of Alzheimer's cases could be prevented if people just started modifying their lifestyle choices. So how intriguing that we have this conversation and that, uh, that information took its genesis right in your backyard. What do we know about the way in which information and the nervous system connects between the brain and the gut? What, what have we learned in terms of that, that connection biologically? Well, structurally and therefore biologically, we've known uh, for hundreds of years that the, there's a cranial nerve that comes out of the, of the brain called the vagus nerve. And this vagus nerve... Uh, vagus is a Latin term that means wanderer. That's where the word vagabond comes from. It wanders out of the brain to the heart and all the way down into the intestines. So we know that the brain is directly related to the, to 
to the intestinal system, the digestive system, structurally through this vagus nerve that mediates both outflow f from the brain to control the intestinal activity, but also uh, receives sensory information from the intestine feeding back to the brain. So there really is a structural explanation for saying, gee, I have a gut feeling about something because we do have sensory nerves in the gut that project right into the brain. Beyond that, however, we know that the gut is influenced by outflow from the brain from a chemical perspective. For example, when we're under stress, the brain sends out a signal to the adrenal glands and the adrenals create a chemical called cortisol. And cortisol directly affects the balance of gut bacteria, the stimulation of immune cells that feeds back to the brain, as well as the leakiness or the permeability of the gut, and even the function of the brain's memory center called the hippocampus. Now, in moving in the other direction, things directly gut-related have a huge role to play in influencing moment-to-moment -moment brain activity. The gut bacteria help to extract nutrients from our food that are brain important, like the B vitamins. The gut bacteria are playing a fundamental role in the creation of neurochemistry. Chemicals like dopamine and the happy chemical serotonin are actually more than 90% made in the gut. So these neurotransmitters that we're all uh, looking at in terms of depression and ADHD, etc., are actually not primarily made in the brain, they're made in the gut. So that just gives you an idea as to this powerful connection chemically and even physically uh, between the brain and the gut and vice versa between the gut and feeding back to the brain. Are they connected through our central nervous system or is it closer to something you talk about in the book, the idea of basically two nervous systems existing almost in parallel? They're directly related. Again, uh, these uh, outflow um, nerves uh, in the gut feed directly into the vagus nerve uh, and are brought right into the brain itself and have a huge uh, influence throughout the brain and influencing all manner of brain activity. Uh, and similarly, outflow from the brain is structurally and physically directly uh, involved in the gut. Um, but that's not to downplay the chemical mediators that I just mentioned earlier, and more importantly, uh, at least in terms of the long-term issues of brain degenerative conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, we know that those conditions and, and multiple sclerosis are inflammatory. These are inflammation issues of the brain. Alzheimer's is an inflammatory disease just as sure as arthritis is or inflammatory conditions of the skin. Alzheimer's is inflammation. The, the set point of inflammation in your body is governed by the leakiness of the gut and the leakiness of the gut is uh, the job of the gut bacteria. They maintain the lining of the gut to reduce this leakiness. So how incredible it is that the dots are now connected between the, the milieu or the array or the diversity of bacteria living within the gut and this process called inflammation, which is the cornerstone of Alzheimer's disease and things like autism. It is, it's a brave new world. And understand that the most powerful influence on this diversity and health 
of the microbiome, the bacteria in the gut, are, are the very food choices that we make. So this then connects all the dots ranging from our food choices to our brain destiny related through the changes in the gut bacteria, inflammation, the role of inflammation in neurodegeneration. Very, very exciting. I'm actually planning uh, next month to be out at the Buck Institute uh, giving a lecture on this topic. Um, uh, I think it's the 19th of next month, um, right, in, uh, right in the area where you are. Mm-hmm. To what extent is there a, a feedback loop in all of this in that the choices we make with respect to, to the foods we eat, the reaction that it has on the gut, the way it impacts the brain, then feeds back and causes us to make other choices that may be good or bad? To what extent is there a self-perpetuating cycle in some of this? That's right. So self-perpetuating is, in fact, just the opposite of negative feedback. Um, negative feedback is, is, for example, your um, thermostat in your home uh, that keeps the temperature right where it needs to be. If it gets uh, too hot, your air conditioner kicks on and brings it back to, to where it needs to be. If it goes too low, the air conditioner turns off. That's a negative feedback loop. But what you're describing is actually a positive feedback loop, and that is far more germane to our situation. Because as gut bacteria are altered, it creates a situation where, as I mentioned, there's more inflammation that increases the dysfunctionality of the brain, which causes stress, which leads to more cortisol production, which further changes the gut bacteria and creates what we call a feed-forward pro- uh, progression, where the situation gets worse and worse and people get into a downward spiral. So that's obviously something that we need to interrupt today or there will be hell to pay there you know this creates a scenario where you know suddenly the senior moments get more and more common and we suddenly find ourselves in a doctor's office being diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment which is the harbinger for other more detrimental things down the line the good news is that that feed forward cycle is absolutely able to be interrupted. And once again, we turn to our food choices to reestablish healthy gut bacteria, to reduce inflammation, reduce gut permeability, taking away from the diet those things that threaten the healthy microbiome, things like uh, high, high sugar in the diets, um, artificial sweeteners, gluten, for example, that is known to increase gut permeability. And we welcome back foods that are enriched with good bacteria, foods that have been fermented, like kimchi, kombucha, uh, cultured yogurt, and foods that are rich in what we call prebiotic fiber, inulin. These are foods that will amplify the growth of good bacteria in the gut, and these are foods like jicama, Jerusalem artichoke, asparagus, onions, leeks, garlic. These foods have in them a special type of fiber that then goes on to, to amplify the growth of the good probiotics that live within the gut already, heal the gut permeability, reduce inflammation, and put an end to this um, spiraling, this uh, feed-forward cycle that you very well described. To what extent does genetics play a role in this, in you know, the degree of our susceptibility and sensitivity, particularly to these things? Well, there's no question that genetics do play a role. 
And uh, as it relates to what has been called the Alzheimer's gene, and I think it's very overstated, um, the, it, it's called the APOE4 uh, allele that some people carry. 20% of Americans carry that uh, gene. As a matter of fact, that, uh, uh, that risk is certainly much higher in individuals who have a primary relative, mother, father, sister, brother, with Alzheimer's disease. But that said, that's a genetic predisposition. It's not a genetic determinant. There are plenty of people going around who are APOE4 positive and don't end up with Alzheimer's disease. So there is a risk that is imparted by carrying that gene, but we can override that. We can offset that risk by redoubling our efforts to modify a variety of lifestyle factors. Primarily, uh, number one, by, by restarting an aerobic exercise program. When we aer aerobically exercise, we change our gene expression, turning on the genes that will code for protection of brain cells and even amplifying the growth of new brain cells where we need it most in the brain's memory center. Um, other dietary things to consider are being low carbohydrate, higher in fat in the diet, uh, reducing our consumption of foods that threaten the gut lining like gluten, making sure that our vitamin D level is in the optimal range, not just in the so-called normal range. And uh, B vitamins, for example, really critically important. So the point is that um, <clears throat> it's a genetic a risk factor, but it's certainly not a genetic determinant. One of the things you talk about is the impact on things like autism, and, and how do we look at this in the context of childhood diseases before kids are, are, have had a chance to really make the wrong food decisions, the wrong de decisions with respect to what's in their gut? Well, that's a wonderful question, and that's our job as parents to gain uh, enough knowledge to understand that autism is a gut-related issue. Any parent of a child on the autistic spectrum knows very well that the first thing they noticed that was awry in that child's development wasn't his uh, issues with speech or socialization, it was digestive. It was difficulty with bowel movements, foul-smelling stools, very, very uh, restricted uh, food uh, choices that the child would, would gravitate to. So this is the complaint that we hear day in and day out in our office in dealing with parents who have a child on the spectrum that, you know, the first thing we noticed at three months of age was this kid had such digestive issues. And how does it relate to the microbiome? Well, when you read the peer-reviewed literature that we reviewed in BrainMaker that talks about the risk of autism being doubled in children born by C-section, it begins to challenge us to focus on a mechanism that would explain it. What is the difference in a child born by C-section compared to born through the birth canal? Well, it takes us to, to what exactly happens uh, as a child is born through the birth canal versus not C-section. When that child passes through the birth canal, he or she receives what's called a microbial baptism. There are a whole array, a whole host of organisms living in the vaginal birth canal that that child, once uh, the uh, amniotic fluid is released, the water breaks, if you will, and that child passes through the birth canal, they get inoculated with a whole host of good bacteria that then are the basis for the formation of that child's initial microbiome. When you bypass that event by C-section, you don't establish 
the type of microbiome that is healthy for that for a child. And that sets up risk for developmental issues down the line and situations that can persist even into adulthood. So the risk of autism is doubled. The risk of ADHD is tripled. The risk of type 1 autoimmune diabetes is increased 70%. Um, the risk of being an obese adult is increased 50% just by being born by C-section. Now, Jeff, I want to be as, as totally clear as possible. C-section save lives. I'm not here to beat up on women and, and, and uh, parents who've elected for C-section because it was necessary or the birth was complicated and needed C-section. How wonderful it is that we have this technology. But the notion that one-third of all births in America is complicated and requires a C-section is hard to accept, especially when other Western cultures um, have rates of 8%, 10%, far lower than ours, and are therefore reducing, uh, have reduced uh, rates of things like autism in comparison to what we see in America, where autism is now predicted to be occurring in one of 60 births, and that uh, the number, uh, the incidence of autism has increased uh, seven to eight fold, seven to eight times in just the past 15 years. So this isn't a genetic issue that suddenly our, the human genome has mutated and now we have kids with autism. No, that didn't happen. This is an environmental issue and plays uh, very significantly upon our knowledge of the role of the human microbiome in terms of inflammation and the brain, uh, the brain's response to things going on in the gut and gets back to our original conversation. To what extent can we, A, test for the state of the microbiome either early on in childhood or even later on in adulthood? And to what extent can it be adjusted chemically beyond food intake and the things we've been talking about? Well, those are excellent questions, and uh, as you may be aware, there are um, companies now that will uh, uh, make it available for you to test your microbiome. You simply supply them a, uh, a stool sample, uh, and they will characterize your microbiome for you. And I think that's all well and good that we have the technology, but I think what that information does is it, is it loads the boat at a time when we really don't know what to do with that information. What does it mean? What is you know, is this, so I, you get your results back, well, is it healthy, is it not healthy, and beyond that, to answer the second part of your question, what do I do with that? So I think a better approach is to explore yourself and your history uh, with a series of questions, and that will give you some uh, inferential idea, some, some inferential information as to the health of your microbiome. So I generally, uh, when I interview a patient, I ask them, a series of questions, and for those of your listeners who already have the book Brain Maker, it's on page 16, and these questions are designed to give you a sense of exactly what you just asked me, a sense of the health of the microbiome, and they deal with questions, for example, like, did your mother take antibiotics when she was pregnant with you? Were you born by C-section? Were you breastfed for less than one month? Did you have lots of ear infections as a child? Did you take lots of antibiotics as a child? Did you have ear tubes placed? Did you have your tonsils out? 
which are indications again of a of a changed microbiome. Do you use uh, steroid medications, nose sprays, or inhalers even now, which are over the counter, the nose sprays, for sinus issues? Do you take antibiotics every couple of years? Do you take acid blocking drugs? That's really a great question. Why? Because these drugs that are so heavily marketed on television uh, that people think they've got to block their stomach acid because they can't tolerate eating a certain food have a huge damaging effect upon the microbiome and no one's talking about it. The risk of a, a life-threatening infection of the gut called C. difficile, Clostridium difficile, is dramatically increased in people taking those drugs. Other questions. Do you have an autoimmune condition? Um, do you have type 2 diabetes? Are you 20 pounds overweight or more? Do you have depression? Do you require laxatives? So these are all indications of a changed microbiome that I think are, are more meaningful uh, in terms of good or bad, making that decision, is my microbiome been threatened, is it compromised, versus getting a, an array of uh, scientific information telling you what types of bacteria are present or not. How difficult or how easy is it to change the microbiome once one decides they're going to do something to adjust for some of these issues you've been talking about? To what extent is some of this reversible? The reset button on the microbiome can be easily pushed. And that's what I think if there's any message from our time together today, that would be what I'd love your listeners to understand. That uh, the first R is remove. You've got to remove those issues in your lifestyle that are threatening your microbiome. Look at your medications. Look at your food choices. Look at your water that you're consuming. And try to understand, based upon the information in BrainMaker, what it is that you may be doing that is right now threatening your microbiome. Then, the second R is to restore. And that is restore your gut with good bacteria. There's nothing proprietary about what you and I are talking about. It simply means going back to the idea of food being thy medicine and uh, appreciating the powerful role of, pre, of uh, probiotic enriched food, the fermented foods that you know, represent what humans have been eating for thousands of years, in addition to the prebiotic foods, the foods that are rich in prebiotic fiber uniquely, that will nurture the good uh, gut bacteria adding in a wide-spectrum uh, probiotic that you can buy at the health food store. These are fundamental ways that you can push the reset button on your microbiome. The most intense way is uh, something that I describe in BrainMaker, and it's called fecal microbial transplant. And it simply means having the microbiome from a healthy person <clears throat> transplanted, uh, put into the colon of a person who's very sick, whose microbiome has been severely disrupted. And I'm certainly not recommending that, that your listeners jump on doing this fecal microbial transplant, but I talk about it in the book uh, in the context of current research and also present a couple of, of cases of, of my patients with significant uh, illnesses, autism on the one hand and multiple sclerosis on the other, that were dramatically improved having undergone this treatment. Videos of these patients actually appear on my website, drperlmutter.com. 
Again, I'm not suggesting that MS is treatable with fecal transplant, nor should parents with children with autism rush out and do an FMT. But, interestingly enough, since a BrainMaker was published, the University of Arizona has now completed recruiting a large number of autistic children to do exactly what it is that we talked about, fecal microbial transplant as a treatment for autism. Uh, they're going to do this and then publish their resu results in a peer-reviewed journal so that all the world will then see uh, how uh, changing gut bacteria can dramatically affect the brain uh, in what has been traditionally considered a brain disorder, but we now understand is more gut-related, and that is uh, autistic spectrum disorder. And how do we square this with other treatments for other diseases, whether it's chemotherapy for cancer or whatever it might be, that is going to have a profound effect on the, on the microbiome? Well, there, that's kind of a two-part a two question. I think that we first need to understand that the treatment of certain medical disorders is going to harm the microbiome. I'm not sure mm -hmm. if that's where you're going, yes. but let me just go there for one minute if I may. It is now time that we take a step back and recognize that uh, the, the primary dictum of medicine remains, above all, do no harm. And we have to look at that now through the lens of damaging the microbiome. So even, uh, even uh, from a nutritional perspective, for years doctors have said, look, sugar and high carbohydrates are risky because they will increase your risk of diabetes. So what should you drink? If you're going to drink soda, doctors themselves for years have said, don't drink soda, drink uh, artificially sweetened beverages. Diet this and diet that. Well, let's look at that statement through the idea of above all, do no harm and relate that to the microbiome. Your risk for becoming a type 2 diabetic is doubled if you're drinking sugar, uh, artificially sweetened drinks in comparison to drinks that have sugar and calories. Think about that. Who knew? That study uh, was explained to us by a recent report out of Israel that showed that the mechanism by which diet drinks double your risk for diabetes, which is so counterintuitive. Why would that happen? No calories, no sugar, doubles your risk for type 2 diabetes is because of changes in the microbiome. Chemotherapy has a dramatic effect upon the microbiome, and the microbiome is what we need for detoxification and for reducing inflammation. Antibiotics goes without saying, a huge effect upon the microbiome, as do uh, acid-blocking drugs and even the non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs, the, the ibuprofen that everybody takes with every ache and pain. So now that we understand this information that our most well-respected peer-reviewed literature is talking about day in and day out, we have to think about above all do no harm through the idea from the vantage point of, and now let's extend that to what is the effect of these uh, medications on the microbiome and what can we do to offset that. So a patient needs to take an antibiotic for a bacterial infection, fine but load up on probiotics, load up on prebiotics, use fermented foods. Now, beyond that, uh, I think in the treatment of diseases, I think that we're going to see moving forward the idea of manipulating the gut bacteria in addition to various therapies geared at a condition. Let me give you an example. In America today, the mainstream 
uh, treatment, the mainstay approach to treating type 2 diabetes are various medications like metformin or glucophage that many of your listeners who are type 2 diabetics are taking. It's probably the most common medication used in, in America for treating type 2 diabetes. But that said, research is now indicating that there are specific changes in the gut bacteria that correlate with type 2 diabetes. Who knew? To the extent that a Dr. Max Newdorp in Amsterdam presenting his data at Harvard in September of last year, I attended the conference, showed that he could reverse type 2 diabetes by changing the gut bacteria by using fecal transplant. And he did this in over 250 patients. Think about that. Now, <laughs> again, I'm not suggesting that your, your listeners go right out and have a fecal transplant if they have type 2 diabetes. That's not an FDA-approved treatment. Not, you know, it's not anything accepted yet or available yet. But it paves the way for our understanding that the gut bacteria control our blood sugar. They control our extraction of calories from the food that we eat, and they control our metabolism. So I think that moving forward, there is still a place for medication, but pretty soon we're going to see treatments for depression, for obesity, for diabetes, for inflammatory disorders, representing a, um, a collaborative effort between pharmaceutical intervention, other forms of intervention, and manipulating the gut bacteria to the end of, uh, to achieving the end of, of getting people through their illness. Dr. David Perlmutter, his book is Brain Maker. Doctor, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, I sure enjoyed it. Thank you, Jeff. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 